0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. The reading of God's word this morning is taken from Romans eight. We resume Romans after a Christmas break of talking about Hebrews chapter one and one in chapters one and two on the person of Christ, and so we get back to our study in Romans 8. I'm going to read, this is on page 944, if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew. I'll begin reading with verse 12, but we're focusing on verses 14 through 17. Now, just to get a little context as you turn here, you'll notice there's a contrast in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh... Those who live according to the Spirit. And it's interesting that there's a similar contrast, but the second part of that is different in verse 13. Live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So walking with the Spirit, uh, walking according to the Spirit is equivalent, is the equal of putting to death those things that oppose God. That's what walking in the Spirit means. And that's going to be important to, uh, as we talk about what sonship uh, means in this passage. Verse 12 then, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order. Lives that we will live it out in faith, in joy in obedience. We pray it for the name and glory of Christ. Amen. Now, our uh, title is Abba Familiar to You. For most Americans, if the word Abba brings up any association, it would bring up the Swedish rock group that topped the charts from 1972 to 1982. A surprising uh, to realize that they're number four in the all-time list of groups. ABBA. <laughs> 375 million uh, recordings sold by ABBA, and every year they still sell two to three million. Okay, and their their name, ABBA, comes just from the, it's an acronym of the first names of the group. Uh, Agnetha, uh, Bjorn, Benny, and uh, uh, Annie Freed, that's her name. Uh, So that's the situation, Abba. And I hope after this morning, though, that we'll have uh, quite a different view and quite a central view of Abba because this word Abba, you could say, is at the very heart of the Christian life. In many respects, it's a summary of Christianity, a definition of Christianity. And certainly the source and spring of everything we are and do as Christians. Uh, so our title, Are You Familiar with Abba? Uh, we're dealing with this central name that God the Holy Spirit has put in our hearts and on our lips. Abba. So first we're going to look at the confidence, joy, and intimacy of Abba, Father, uh, the confidence, joy, and intimacy, and then the new walk of Abba, Father, and then the certain future of Abba, Father, okay? So there's an intimacy and joy in this name. There's a new walk that issues from this name. There is a certain future that is attached to this name. Now, as many of you know, the word Abba is connected strongly with the person of Christ himself, and his cry in the garden in uh, Matthew fourteen thirty six, uh, as he's the, the night before he's uh, going to be crucified, he cries out, "Abba, Father!" And for some time, it was thought that "Abba" was only the name of children to their father, but it seemed to be more extensive. But it is a very personal, very intimate name uh, that is used, and they think really brought into the forefront first by Jesus Himself. But what's so interesting is that Paul can assume in this passage, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that this is what all Christians do at that time. And so this word Abba was so precious because here on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord used this name and very most likely probably that he used this name constantly in his prayers and invited his followers to use this very name and became precious to them. And so among all the Aramaic, uh, this is an Aramaic word, and all the, um, among the, those who spoke Aramaic it was used. But then among the Greek speakers, the Aramaic word is treasured and, and held on to so that everybody, apparently in personal life and perhaps in the liturgy itself in public wor- worship, it's this Abba Father, and Father is just the Greek version of that. It's uh, so the retention of this calls into mind for all of them the same relationship that Christ had uh, to the Father, and that that Christ in his in our identity with Him and our union with Him, it's as though He gives us a share of His relationship to the Father. It's like, come come over. No, no, I want you to stand right here. I'm going to put my arm around you. Now, I want you to say it with me. Abba. We say Abba. He says, yes, Abba. We both say Abba. He's my Father. He's your Father. That intimacy of this union that we have with Christ and therefore the intimacy that we have with the Father and the ability to say Abba. But it's even more intimate than that because the risen Christ puts His Spirit in us to cry, Abba, Father. Verse nine, it says that this is that the Spirit of God is none other than the Spirit of Christ. In, in the next verse, he says, Christ is in us through the Spirit of Christ. And the way it's put in Galatians three, uh, Galatians four, is this way: Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See. Your sons, and so he sent the spirit of his son into your hearts so that that spirit of his son cries out, Abba, in your heart. Could it get more intimate? Could it get more personal that God wants to bring about in your heart and my heart this sense that we are his children? That we are called into somehow a similar relationship that Jesus Christ himself has with the Father. And always, you've heard me say this before, but always connect this with Romans 5.5 where he says, uh, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Those aren't talking about two different things. They're just describing the same thing in two different ways. He's poured out the love of God, uh, the, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In other words, we've become intimately associated and experience and taste the love of God because of the Holy Spirit. And here he puts it this way, and therefore we say Abba, we say Father. And it's contrasted, isn't it, in uh, verse 15 with the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. It's not this kind of spirit, but it is the spirit of adoption. Now, this may refer in part to Paul's even looking back on his life as a Pharisee, and now in his new intimacy and joy with the Father, he looks back upon that as just slavery and fear, which is interesting because the Pharisees were so haughty and prideful, and they, they looked with Contempt upon others, and yet now, with his intimacy with God, he looks back and sees the fear of it all. He sees the competitive nature that they had and, and the sense of not ever being accepted with one another and and the sense of judgment but even then that they had, and the alienation they had from God, even as they claimed to know God, and he says it was a, it was slavery and fear, and this is always at the root of prejudice. And a merciless regard of others, however sneering and prideful a person is, however much haughtiness and disdain one may have, fear is at the source of that. fear he may be referring to the fear the pagans experienced as they thought of the gods and their tricky appeasement, right? And the fear the Jews experienced as they uh, perhaps were looked down on by their leaders. Was the synagogue perhaps a place of fear? Um, Slavery certainly recalls being under the law and being, as Paul describes it in Galatians 4, under the imprisonment of the law, bringing us to our freedom as sons of God. But particularly this idea of slavery It indicates an alienated relationship. At the forefront of this is the slave mentality. A slave fears retribution every day. Is that how you view your relationship with God? Always kind of ducking? You always see who's the little brother and not the older brother? Because even if they're grown and the older brother's walking by, you know, he's like this... 'Cause he knows he hit on me his my whole life, he may do it again. We kind of walk around, many believers, almost ducking God, thinking he's just ready to, to whack me any minute, anything I do. A slave mentality. The master his master's judging frown is on him, not his favor. He's always looking, the master uh, in this situation, for an opportunity to punish his slave. And we tend to think of that. God's always looking for an opportunity to punish me. The master's harsh with the slave, unforgiving, unmerciful, exacting much from him with little in return. He's oppressive, cruel, and domineering. Is that your picture of God? He doesn't care about his pain or trouble or struggle. He just sees him as a commodity to be used as he pleases. That's the master's view of his slave. The master's not concerned or tender or watchful. He spends time with him only to make sure he's working and to find another reason to be displeased with him. Is that your feeling of the presence of God? I... I once preached a sermon. This is sad. I was in seminary at least, and uh, early in seminary. That's my only justification, you know. No, it, it it was Psalm 139, and it talked about the presence of God. And the psalmist is rejoicing in God's presence. But I thought it was my duty to tell everybody how scary that is. You're always in God's presence. You better watch what you do in God's presence. I mean, that was my basic message. Now, that's true, but out of the sense of joy and intimacy and wonder that God loves you and wants to be with you, and therefore you want to please him. It's a whole different world than he's there to find something wrong. And so the slave dreads the presence of his master, really. He dreads his interactions. He dreads his words. He stays as far away from the master as he can, really. Really? The master doesn't encourage him or help him. He's not ever with him to be with him and enjoy him and fellowship with him. The slave never sits at his table. He never shares a meal or family gathering. There's no bond of love with his master. There's no trust. There's no delight. He fears him and therefore he hates him. You will only hate what you fear. He says, this is not the spirit we have received. This is not the spirit we've received. We've received the spirit of adoption. Sonship. The spirit brings about in our hearts this passionate, trusting, delighted, joyful, hopeful, glad cry. Abba, Father. It's emotional. It's a cry. This is, a, this is an emotional cry. And when he talks earlier about being led by the Spirit, it is in a, comp- a compulsion by the Spirit, a powerful moving of the Spirit by which we cry. It is a confidence that we are his children. It's a cry of amazement, of awe, of hope. Well, so the confidence, the joy, the intimacy of this Abba Father, but there's the new walk uh, that's part of this cry, Abba, Father. What's interesting is the connection of verses 14 and through 17 of what came right before that. And many times you'll hear something like this. In fact, I read some of it in uh, a few expositions I read on this passage, or, or or skimmed at least. But like, how are you led by the Spirit? And it'll give you ways that you're led by the Spirit. And... In fact, it's more like if you're led by the Spirit to date this person or that person, buy this car or that car, kind of how you know the will of God. But that's not the context. It's not at all what Paul's talking about. Unless uh, doing that has to do with uh, a moral choice. Then we're in the middle of what this is talking about. But notice the connection. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, what does he mean? He's saying, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live because those who are so led, in other words, those who so put the deeds of the body uh, to death, and here's that word, who are so compelled and enabled by the Spirit to do that, these are none other than sons. In other words, it reads shorthand like this. You put the deeds of the body, you will live because you're sons. Because you cry out, Abba, Father. What else would you do if you're a son? What else would you do if you delight in this Father and you have joy in Him and amazement that you belong to Him and you have an affection and a desire for Him? What else will you do but put to death the deeds of the body? What else will you do, as he speaks of earlier, than submit to God's law and seek to please him? Why? He's your father. Certainly the law will be fulfilled in your life and you'll seek to give yourself up to him. He's your father and you know (laughs) that he's your father. And so that's what sons do. It's interesting. Now, I don't quote Karl Barth a lot, okay? But he said something really brilliant that was picked up by several commentaries. He said, in this statement in verse 15, Abba, Father, he says, is found all of our ethical life. What does he mean by that? All of your ethical life is bound up in that? And he means by this, in one sense, all you have to do every day is enter into and know and own and live out that relationship of Abba Father. That's your calling every day. And with the intensity and joy and confidence and delight of that cry and the reality of it in your life, that governs and issues in everything you do. And if you don't have that relationship or know that, experiencing His love, experiencing the redemption in Christ and it, it's influencing you, there will be no obedience. There will be no glad, delighted following after God. And so in a sense, all of ethics has bound up, all of obedience has bound up in this one cry, Abba, Father. And so your affection and honor and awe issue in a transformed life. Your trust of Him, this knowledge that you're accepted in love, it plants you in a new walk so that you no longer are living according to the flesh, but you're living according to the Spirit now. It is a new world, as he calls it in verse 6, of peace and life, of shalom and life. And it's the same childlike trust that says, Abba, Father, in childlike trust, puts to death the deeds of the body. It's the same trust. It's the same delight. The the way you're able to put away idols in your life is that you're embracing the Father. You've got a new affection that's displacing the old affection. And so you're giving yourself up to the will of this one who has so loved you and you're so amazed at that love. You trust your Father. You know He loves you. You're convinced of your Sonship. And this means you give up your life to His will. Refusing sin, you see, is a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing in God's love for you. That's why we give up sin. And so the Spirit leads us. When he says you're being led by the Spirit, he leads us in the way of full life obedience. What we think and say and do and desire, full throttle into the image of Christ from glory to glory, as Paul puts it in another passage. That's what the Spirit is doing. Leading is not just, quote, discovering the will of God. He is leading us into the expressed will of God that the, the, the life of God will take root in us. The deeds of the body, for instance, that he mentions here, they're defined more fully in Colossians 3 where he has a similar idea of saying we must put to death the things of the flesh. We must put to death the deeds of the body. And then he enumerates it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. We put on in the Spirit compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. We put on love. We let the peace of Christ reel in our hearts. We are thankful. We let the Word of Christ dwell in ourselves richly. We do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Or in the sister passage in Ephesians 4, the life of the Spirit, we put away falsehood. We speak truth with each one of our neighbors. We no longer steal, but we labor so we can give to those who don't have anything. We don't let any word come out of our our mouths that is filthy, that is unwholesome. We submit to our husbands. We love our wives and are not harsh with them. We obey our parents. We obey in everything those who are earthly masters. This is what the Spirit leads us to do. We walk in the Spirit because we are children. We're sons of God. And it even means that as sons of God, we suffer with our brother who has died for us. He says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ provided, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Sons realize their regal character and they realize that compromise is beneath the dignity of sons. To betray their father and brother for the sake of comfort or the sake of acceptance or safety is not the spirit of sonship. The children of God are glad they belong to Him. They relish their precious relationship with Him. And they give up everything for Him. They trust Him for their end, which is glory. Said there in verse 17 and in 23, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And later in the chapter we will see. And so these are the ways in which the Spirit uh, leads us. And putting to death the, the deeds of the body seems to be closely associated with suffering here too. This is what sons do. We put to death the deeds of popularity. We put to death the deeds of social standing or control of our lives or safety or acceptance by the world or honor and recognition from the world. We are willing to suffer with him because we realize, I'm a son, I'm a son. And and these are all the ways, as he says here, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. When the Spirit enables us to know this relationship and the Spirit enables us to begin to live out our life this way, he bears witness, you're his, you belong to him. You have a new life in him. And then there's the certain future of Abba Father. There's the intimacy and joy. There's the, the life that issues from it. And then there 's the future of it it 's interesting, almost without fail, Any time sonship is mentioned in scripture, uh, inheritance is mentioned and in the, in the Roman world, the reason a man would adopt a son is because he wouldn 't have an heir, perhaps he had only uh, i say only in their okay and i 'll explain this in a minute in their society, only girls, uh, and you had to have a son to have an heir. What's interesting about that is the adoption is for the purpose of inheritance, and so you must you must always associate that. I made a son so that I can be an heir. He brings it out immediately, doesn't he? If we're heir, if we're if we're children, if we're sons, then we're heirs. Bam. It's all one piece, and so when he says. If you, uh, if you put to death the deeds of the body, verse 13, you will live, he's saying, because you're sons. Certainly you will live. What else could be your destiny as sons but to live? Your heirs, I'm telling you. You will live because you're sons. Sons are heirs. And ladies here, don't be put off by the word sons. It doesn't exclude you. It includes you in a wonderful way. Amazingly, in Galatians 3, it says, There is no male or female, but all are sons. Whoa, wait a minute. That's not to deny the glorious femininity that you have and the particular way you image the glory of God in your femininity, which we don't in our masculinity. We do it in different ways that complements and shows the full glory of God. So taking nothing away from that, you must realize that sons is a, is a title of, of uh, status in that society. It means that you've, there is no status that the sons had that you don't have as a woman. So this word doesn't push you out. It, it, it grabs hold of you and say, come on in here. You've got full status along with us. And you can look at Mojo and Curly and say, same status as you do, you know, because <laughs> you are one with us. You are one in Christ uh, so, ownership and inheritance belong to sons. The place of primacy was given to sons in that society, not daughters. Daughters had to attach themselves to a son in marriage to share his ownership and inheritance. But now, male and female, all are sons with full, rich, undeniable, undeniable and identical privilege, inheritance and final reign in the kingdom of God. Because we're all sons in that sense. And these promises, the promises to Abraham, were promises of the land, which then in the development of theology became, in in the writings, became the inheritance of the whole earth. And then not only the inheritance of the earth, but the new earth, the new kingdom that God will bring upon this world. Um, It's, you know, the theological term is the eschatological term. Uh, life. Whoa, whoa, why these big words? Keep it simple, right? Now, the, just an example here, There's the word sanctification is in the Bible. That's five big syllables, okay? Uh, but it's in the Bible. Now, even if you call sanctification something like bib, okay, there's your short term, it still is a rich term with so much about it, okay? Uh, it's like One Reba McIntyre song is not all country music, is it? You know, you think, gosh, think of the history of country music and all the different artists that makes up country music. So these terms are not like, you know, a single uh, pewter pair of earrings, but these terms indicate treasure chests of riches that are unfolding before us. So let's don't be afraid of them. And this word eschatological simply means... The, the last things, the final world that's going to come. And it, it means that even those who've died now have not entered into that final realm because they don't have new bodies yet. And look at this earth. Look at their bodies. Their bodies are in the grave. Look at our bodies. Look at this 60, almost 60-year-old 60 body. And that ain't what it used to be. And it's not going to be any better next year or the next year. This is not the new world. It's the final time of the complete renewal of our whole selves and the renewal of creation itself. And we'll read about it in verses 18 and following. And so, what we are to inherit is that final glorious world that God is going to bring about. He has—he's going to make His people the the owners of that world, the, the kings and queens of that world. But... The promise to Abraham, Paul says, really fell on, and he uses a singular word here. He says, his seed. He says, by saying seed in the Old Testament, he meant Christ. So all the promises to the people of God are focused on this one person of Jesus Christ. He is the heir. In the fullest sense, you can say, he's the man. Okay, He is the definition of the new humanity. He is the pattern of the new humanity. And He has won for the new humanity a new world and a new reign. And as we belong to Him, we are called co-heirs with Christ. It's amazing that Christ would call us alongside of Himself and say, Say Abba with me. And then that He would win for us at the expense of His own blood his own suffering for the punishment that we deserve, that he would win for us an eternal inheritance and just hand it over free. Not earned, not deserved. We did nothing in the world for it. He just deeds it over by sheer mercy and kindness to us in spite of all that we had done against him. We are co-heirs with Christ and in an amazing statement, he says, we are heirs of God. You know, if you had the whole world, if you had everything and you didn't have God, you would be poverty stricken. And you can see it as uh, Tom Crow has told us about the terrible things that swirl around the Super Bowl as he is in kind of the upper echelon of some of the legal, the uh, uh, things, the, the the fire and police uh, groups that are having to keep an eye on all this stuff, but the the prostitution and drugs that swirl around the Super Bowl. The super rich having a week-long party and the destruction and alienation that surrounds it. I'm not saying the ball game itself is wrong. Football is not wrong. Being together as a crowd, that's not wrong in itself. But just to see what happens when people have the whole world... And they don't have God. But we're heirs of God. And the idea is that we, we will, part of it is that we will behold, we will see his beauty. And, and I've seen some beautiful, amazing things in my life in his creation. And when I think of the times that I've been practically breathless looking at something, Practically weak in the knees looking over a, a mountain, a mount, out a mountain overlook, or, or seeing something in the seashore, in the ocean, and just being transfixed by it. And then to think that these are little drops, little inklings of the beauty and glory of God and His character that breaks in upon us on that day. And then to think that you not only behold the beauty, but the beauty enters you. It takes you over. And you're you're made into that beauty. Not divine, not as the Eastern thought would have, but because you 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 stay an individual, but you are changed into the glorious image and the joy of, of being holy and perfect forever. You will inherit God. You know, the earth is peanuts, the earth is nothing. You'll inherit God Himself. And, and you think, how, how is what kind of access is Christ going to have? What kind of enjoyment is the man Christ Jesus going to have with the Father? Does He have right now? You, it's hard to imagine what He must enjoy as the perfect man in the presence of God. And you're a fellow heir of that God with Christ. You will enter into the full joy of His human joy. You're an heir with God. And so this is your glory as a child of God. You, as he says later in this passage, we're predestined to be conformed to his image in the end. That's that's the plan. And all along the way, we're being conformed to his image. All along the way, we're being transformed into his character. And our final image bearing, the final uh, change of our bodies being made perfect is just a reflection of the inner perfection that we have in that day. The inner glory of being like God. And so our bodies must take on the perfection as a reflection of what we are, what we've become in Him. So the glory of our new self, we're beginning to walk in it now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that you're being transformed from glory to glory. It's like you're already sons and daughters. You're already taking on this glory and it's manifesting itself in the way you give yourself up to God. The way you cry out, Abba, Father. The way you, you, you wage war against all that is displeasing to Him. And we say, because... I can say, Abba, Father, because I have an inheritance, I can live out a new life because I have His love. I don't have to depend on the things that displease God any longer. I I can cast aside these idols. I can cast aside everything that displeases Him. We don't do this perfectly, of course, but that's the way it works. That's how it happens. And so... For those of you who are visiting perhaps and you don't know Christ, I would say to you this morning, don't refuse the sonship of God. Don't refuse the sonship of God. When you think that He sent His own Son in order, as Paul makes it so clear in Galatians 4, that He sent His own Son for the end result that you could be a child, And will you say no to that? Will you say, no, I'm not going to have the inheritance of this new kingdom that comes. I'm not going to have the inheritance of God. I'm going to turn all of it aside. And then what will happen in that final day is those who've refused him, they get evicted off the property. They get cast out into the outer darkness where there's only weeping and gnashing of teeth with the added agony of the joy that they refused. As John says in John 3, Jesus didn't come in the first place to judge the world, but to save it. These words aren't here for your ultimate judgment. They're for your salvation so that you will enter into sonship now, today, by saying, Lord Jesus, I trust in what you've accomplished, your death to pay for sin, your resurrection to new life. I trust in you as the risen Lord that you would transform me and be with me. Oh, may God give us all grace to rejoice in our our great sonship. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that none here will refuse to be an heir of God, that none here will refuse to be cared for and attended by all of their lives by this faithful God of steadfast love. Oh, Lord. How can it be that all of creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God? How can it be that we who were rebels and fell short of your glory and wasted, turned away from it and despised it, as Paul says earlier, now can be made sons headed for glory? And that our revealing is the trigger for the renewal of all of creation. Lord, may that dignity and that vision sustain us in lives of glad, fervent obedience as true sons and daughters of the King. Amen. The pleasing scene clouded with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian.